0: Let's go ahead and get into our study this morning. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, please open it up to the New Testament book of Galatians, to chapter 2. joined with us the last few weeks as we've been working through the book of Galatians. We've been focused on the good news or the gospel, what it is that we trust and believe in, what it is that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, what it is that we are called to proclaim and invite everyone to receive and respond to, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, lived a perfect life of submission before God died a death in our place bearing our sins upon his shoulders and in his resurrection offering us forgiveness and righteousness and fellowship with God. And as we've looked at the gospel, we've been looking at it from different angles, from different lenses. We've been seeing not just what it is, but how it works. And so most of what we've covered the last few weeks has been Paul walking through a narrative account of his own personal history, how it was that he became a Christian, how it was that his ministry functioned, what his relationship with the church in Jerusalem was about, uh, and how it worked. And so there's two things I want to touch on that we've seen before we read the text this morning, and the first is we saw uh, in the beginning that the gospel that saved Paul— the gospel that saves us and the gospel that saves all who call on the name of Jesus is a gospel primarily of grace. It's not something that we do or must do. It's something that God has done. And that means wherever we are and whoever we are, we can receive that gift. That's what grace means. It means that God has done everything necessary for your salvation and there are no prerequisites. There are no preconditions second we saw last week because of that the gospel creates a community of love and unity because we are all made one by that same gift we all receive the same spirit of god and share that in common we're all part of the same body of christ we all share the same eternal destiny destiny we're all part of the same family we're all being built together into the same temple And so we talked last week and we saw in Paul's own words and story that when that unity is threatened, when there's division between those who call themselves Christians, it threatens the gospel itself. When we get to this passage, both of those things salvation is by grace, and salvation leads to unity, and that unity is primary seem in tension. As we read this, we're going to see confrontation, we're going to see a public calling out, we're going to see a challenging, and we're also going to meet the fact that the gospel comes with demands. But I wanna show you this morning that that's actually part and parcel, and it's, it's those demands that are implied. By the unity that we're talking about. It's those demands that are rooted in the gospel. And that even Paul's confrontation here is for the sake of that gracious gift in Christ and its demands, as opposed to self made demands of worth that we put on and divide the body of Christ. Just a few verses this morning, picking up in verse 11. It says here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, okay, you might not know the name Cephas, but you probably know the name Peter. This is the apostle Peter, one of the 12. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that's James, the brother of Jesus, one of the pastors in the church in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles, But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious and you've designed salvation in such a way that it can be responded to simply and immediately without understanding all of its implications, without knowing all the ways it works out in our life, without knowing what it fully means, even a child can receive, confess Jesus as Lord, and become one of your children. But at the same time, Lord, we recognize that the salvation you offer in Christ is so comprehensive and so holistic that the only appropriate response, in fact, the gift itself entails nothing less than a cultivation of righteousness and a walking in line with the truth of that gospel. I pray as we look at it this morning, you would give us the discernment to see where it is that you are calling us to follow you as Lord and simultaneously the things that we impose upon others that have nothing to do with Jesus and actually divide the body of Christ, that need to be opposed. Give us your spirit. Teach us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to focus this morning on that sentence in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... What Peter does, or what Paul does here, is to oppose, to confront, to challenge. In fact, he does not condemn Peter, he just says he was condemned. He declares him condemned, not sitting as a judge, but as an observer and saying, This is just the state of things. He was in a state of condemnation. But it has to do with that, with that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The gospel demands something of us. Now, again, if if you think back on what I said in the beginning, if we look back at what we've learned about what God has done in Jesus Christ, that might sound surprising because isn't the gospel a message of good news, what God has done in Jesus Christ? But one of the things we can sometimes forget is that it's not just what God has done in Jesus Christ, but what God is doing and will do. And so, yes, God is offering us righteousness in Jesus Christ. And part of that, immediately upon salvation, confessing the name of Jesus is instant. You are seen as, recognized as, labeled as righteous. Your sins are completely and totally forgiven. There's a change in status, okay? If Facebook had a a place to change your status, it now says saved, right? But, God's plan is greater than that. His ambition is greater than that. He actually wants to impart to you his very righteousness. Not just as a, you know, awkwardly fitting robe that says Jesus on it and it's like, yeah, it's his robe, but I get to wear it. But he actually wants to transform you from the inside out. That's why God gives his spirit. He makes us righteous. And the good news is, wherever you were, when you became a Christian, wherever you are right now and however you would measure the distance between those two things, God is so committed and his gift is so good, by the time we get to the end of the line, that that righteousness will be total, perfect, complete. That's God's agenda. Let me put it another way. If you read the book of Acts, what is the call, if you will, the altar call, that those who give sermons throughout the book of Acts and invite people to receive the gospel make. It's two words. One of them is believe. The gospel is good news to be believed, to be received, to put your trust in. But what's the other one? It's to repent. And you go, hey, wait a minute. I thought that that grace was a free gift. Why do I have to change something? Which is what repent means. The Greek word means to turn away from and unto. It means a change of mind. Okay. So why do I have to change something? The primary reason is because repent and believe are in some ways two sides of the same reality. Ultimately, what we repent of is trusting in ourselves. Trusting that our way is best. Trusting that our version of life is best. Trusting that what we call good is good and what we call evil is evil trusting that we will define our life. And that's what it was all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve, okay? The fruit of the tree, God says, do not eat, its way leads to death. And through the temptation of the serpent, Eve Eve goes, no, actually, I think it's pretty desirable and it'll be good for me. Her own interpretation of reality, her own destiny, seeking her own will and her own glory, everything we do that the Bible calls sin flows from that autonomous rebellion against God, okay? And so trusting in Jesus entails trusting that his word about how life works, what's good and what's bad, what leads to life and what leads to death is true, okay? That's true on the first occasion. That's why salvation is such a radical experience. It's why when you first become a Christian, you have to Remember that everything you know is wrong. Many of you have experienced this firsthand. I remember it in my life. I remember having conversations with non-Christian friends after I became a Christian and words rolling out of my mouth that I had said a thousand times before in a thousand different conversations and having to make a retraction and go, I don't think that's who I am anymore. I don't think I actually believe that anymore. I don't think that's in step I could say if I use the text today, with the truth of the gospel. In other words, the way that we first respond to the gospel is repent and believe. The way that we continue to follow Jesus is to continue to repent and believe. Okay. The gospel puts demands on us not because that makes us righteous but because God desires to impart a new righteousness to us, a new way of living, a new way of being, a new way of walking. And he doesn't sit in heaven and say, if you do these things, then I will save you. He says, I have saved you. Now take it, receive it, walk it out, respond in it. And as we'll see in Galatians, he gives you what you need to do that. He gives you the Holy Spirit And he says later in Galatians, those who walk in the spirit will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's not a threat. That's a promise. He's not saying if you were really in the spirit, you wouldn't sin anymore. He's saying you don't have to anymore. I've given you what you need for obedience. In the words of Ezekiel, I've taken out your heart of stone. I've put in a living heart of flesh. That's why Paul in Philippians says, work out your own salvation with fear, fear and trembling, because, he says, it is God who works in you. Okay. So the gospel is demanding, and it is demanding in every area and facet of our life. Receiving Jesus calls for change and transformation with our money. Flip over, just back a few books to 2 Corinthians Actually, it's just back a book. And look with me at chapter eight. He's talking to a church here in Corinth. He's calling them to give generously to the poor in Jerusalem. In fact, if you've been following along with us in Galatians, we've seen reference to this idea already. We saw it last week. The apostle said, we stand with you. The same God is at work in you, Paul. The same gospel that you proclaim is ours. All that we ask is that you remember the poor. And he says, I already have that heart. He loved the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering because of a famine. And so he went to his churches, including the one he planted in Corinthians, and he took up an offering. And here he's calling them to give generously. And I want you to notice that he doesn't use guilt He doesn't promise them, you know, shiny baubles in heaven. He doesn't use reward. He says it's suited to the gospel. This is what it looks like to believe and receive. Notice what he says here in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, verse 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by your poverty might become rich. He says, one of the lenses you should view your salvation from is that you were bankrupt, not being able to pay your own debts to God. And Jesus was perfect. God himself. And he laid that aside, became poor, became a man, so that you might become rich. So what does he say after that? He says, verse 10, And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you generosity is good it's not just part of God's character it's part of God's righteous character and so the way we understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ changes the way we handle our money God's generosity should flow out of us into generosity but not because God says all right I saved you okay and now you also need to give it's I saved you and that makes us giving generosity flows in us and therefore flows through us i'll give you another example the gospel demands that we steward our sexuality look with me at first thessalonians okay move past galatians ephesians philippians colossians notice what he says here to this church in Thessalonica chapter 4 verse 1 finally then brothers and sisters we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk to please God just as you're doing that you do so more and more you see that following Jesus is a walk it's a lifestyle it's something and he says what you are right now is a Christian all the more so do it more and more grow in your walk But notice what he says in verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, sanctification is exactly what we're talking about this morning. It's what God desires to do where he takes that righteousness that he's imparted to you in Christ and works it into your life practically. If you wonder this morning what God's will for your life is, it's to make you Christ-like. It's to make you righteous. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. But I want you to notice the primary place he applies that for for the Thessalonicans. He says that you would abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you would know how to control his or her own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. To walk in alignment with the truth of the gospel is to commit yourself to a sexual ethic that manifests God's faithfulness and is intent in creating it in the first place. That's not an added or additional or, or even controversial. Some Christians believe, some others. Paul just says this is what it means for God to save you. It means to save you from sexual immorality. And this one can get touchy for us because sometimes we like sexual immorality. But here's the thing. Almost all of us have seen the death bringing consequences of it. If not in your own behavior, in behavior against you. If not in your own behavior, in the behavior of your parents. For those of you who are children of divorce, sometimes this is a direct component of this reality. For those of you who have experienced sexual assault, God's ways are good and right and true. remember that one of the great pictures, one of the great images that the Bible uses for Jesus's relationship to the church is that of a faithful husband. And so his faithfulness makes us faithful. It moves us in this direction. If I could summarize, the gospel puts demands on every area of your life. Let's just look at one more place, one that's close to here, this one in Titus. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, is one of, I think, my favorite articulations of the gospel. And the reason I love this one, because there are other ones that I love. You know, John 3.16 is great because it's simple, easy to memorize, and beautiful. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's true. But what we find in Titus is a broader truth. Listen to this. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's it, right? Salvation by grace. Then what does it say? Verse 12, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what God is doing in Jesus Christ. Not just saving people from hell, but as it says here, Purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Not slaves fulfilling their end of the contract. Changing not just your works but your desires. But nonetheless your desires will change your works. And again let me just remind you of what it says in verse 12. So 11 says, the grace of God has appeared and brought salvation, and that salvation does what? It trains us to renounce ungodliness. The gospel demands something of us, not for our salvation, but for the application of our salvation. One of the ways we talk about what it looks like to follow Christ is with the word submission, or sometimes the word surrender. Surrender. I like that word because it's helpful because it saves us from the mistake of thinking that Jesus just gives us a fresh start and then says, you better do better this time. Submission is a passive posture. If someone is in submission, they are the direct object, not the subject of that sentence. When we submit ourselves, we submit ourselves unto something. And this isn't merely God's authority, but is working. We yield to God. And we'll see this later in Galatians. But although it is passive, it is tremendously active. We have to seek it, allow it, surrender to it. Let me sum it up with just one more verse, one that I quote all the time. Probably no fuller account of the gospel that we believe is given than in the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 8. It's full, it's big, it's comprehensive. It deals with every aspect, every avenue of it, all the way until it cascades into this climax in chapter 8 of all that God will have done when it's all said and done. And then, after a brief interlude in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul gets to his application. He says, all right, therefore. I beseech you, he says, therefore, brethren, because of God's mercies, because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, two things. One, he goes on to say that it's reasonable that we would respond giving our whole lives to Jesus. Why? Why? Because the God of the universe gave his whole life for you. But have you ever noticed that it says a living sacrifice? It would be easier, right, if it was just death for death. But a living sacrifice is something different. But there's another thing. Living sacrifices have a tendency to crawl off the altar. This is a yielding, it's a surrendering, okay? but it is a direct implication of the gospel itself. So, the fact that Paul opposes Peter here does not deny the grace of God. It demonstrates it. It shows it. And you go, well, what about unity? I thought the thing that gathered us together and kept us unified was that grace, that you are no better or no worse than me, no more deserving of God's salvation that the differences that we have, whether it's of wealth or of status uh, or of culture or these types of things, even of righteousness, none of us comes at a different metric. The gospel is a great leveler. But here's the thing about unity. Unity entails commitment. In fact, community entails commitment. And, you know, I've only been alive for one generation So it might be inappropriate for me to compare now to other times that I wasn't present for. But I know that all of you know along with me the longing we have in our hearts for a real community. For the real relationships of love and support and fellowship. But we bristle at the idea of commitment i want you to support me and be there for me but i do not want to be held accountable my life is my own i want you to always show up for me and give me the help that i need and give me your advice but don't expect me to take it that's my business unity requires commitment i mean to just put it in one really obvious way we are still works in progress Which means the greatest threat to the unity of Christ is not out there. It's right here. It's right here. God has made us one in Christ. Why are we so divided? Because we're divisive. (laughs) Okay. And so part of that unity stems from a loving commitment to remind one another to point one another towards Jesus, to walk with one another as we follow him, to stir one another up, as it says in Hebrews, to love and good works, to hold one another accountable, to recognize that sin leads to blindness, and to point out what's no longer seen, to recognize that repeated sin sears the conscience, and to seek, like a good surgeon, to remove the damaged tissue and make it sensitive again. Now again, this is completely different than sitting in the seat of judge, jury, and executioner, of walking around in condemnation and and declaring people to be unworthy of your love and attention. This is the faithful commitment of a family to want what's best for one another. Okay, it's different than that. What that often looks like, this recognition that the gospel needs to be put into practice in our life, That it trains us, that we're all in training, if you will, that we are all disciples of Jesus. The way that this often plays out is simple and quiet. It happens privately. It happens, as Paul says later in Gentleness, he says, Restore one who's caught in a sin with gentleness. It happens in ways that are protective of reputation. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, don't go to someone else, go to him. And if he will not hear you, just bring one other person. And if you won't hear then, then bring it to the church, right? There's an escalation there, and the escalation is to preserve the reputation. It's to reflect love. Interventions are sometimes necessary, but they're scary. And they're big. And sometimes that can be the greatest threat to them working, right? Because you're surprised. And what do you think? Everyone I know is against me. But the way that this generally works is loving, it's gentle, it's quiet, it's private. It happens when things are small. So isn't it strange here that Paul doesn't seem to take his own advice? In a, in a page later, Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, "'Restore someone who's caught in sin with gentleness.'" Does that sound like I opposed him to his face? Paul is familiar with the teaching of Jesus. He repeats it in other places in Corinthians of how we're to handle sin. He knows that it's supposed to be quiet and private. Why does he publicly denounce Peter here in front of everybody? The difference matters but again, it's worth pointing out here that what Paul is doing is really in the same key, in the same tune. It's, Peter, you're not walking in step with the gospel. But let's lay out these differences because some of us can tend to be zealous and we'd much rather do things like this. Okay? Some of us have that kind of pharisaical bent and even before we were Christians, we were great at telling people what was wrong with them. And so we bring that into the church and our fingers are just constantly pointing. Some of us are boisterous by nature. Some of us who grew up in families where the only way to handle conflict was at, you know, a decibel level of 12. A decibel level of 12, you know. That's actually not Paul's way, by the way. Just read Second Corinthians and look at how he turns and deals with a church that has ultimately and totally rejected him so what's going on here that makes it so significant let's read the story again verse 12 for before certain men came from james he was eating with the gentiles but when they came he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party okay so notice first here peter's behavior changed okay he had been in antioch eating with gentiles non-jewish people sharing their table and their food partaking of communion with them and i'll remind you that this was a big deal for peter peter had been trained to keep a distance from gentiles because that was part of holiness he had been trained to keep the food separate because god had made israel separate from the other nations but he knew that in jesus christ that wall had been broken down He knew, as he says in Acts chapter 10, that God chose no partiality and saved them just as he has saved us. He knew the implications of the gospel. But it started to change. He started to shift his eating habits. He started to move away. And why did he do that? It says because certain men came from James. Okay? Now, these certain men are no doubt Christians who are from the church in Jerusalem and Jewish. And there's something there about their presence that changes Peter's behavior. Second, the tense here, when it says drew back and separated himself. In the Greek, it says that he began to back, draw back and separate himself more and more. Okay. So there was a trajectory in Peter's life this wasn't a one-time act and it wasn't all at once it wasn't like you throw a switch and it's bam it changed his behavior was modifying over time and it was moving in a different direction and that motion was impacting other people who were following suit verse 13 and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him okay he started a movement now remember At no point here does Peter stand up and go, this is not right. Everybody needs to sit separately. He just changes his behavior and changes it more and more. And then people react to that behavior by following suit. And now you have this divided church. In fact, notice here, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, who was a co-pastor, in the church of Antioch, a church that had always been a mixture of Jews and Gentiles who had never by their major practice participated in this. Barnabas, the encourager who had come and gotten Paul when he was the enemy of the Jews who they had heard maybe was a Christian but was still dangerous. Barnabas is the one who went and got him and said, hey, I'll vouch for him. Barnabas, who recognized that something God had done in Antioch that had brought all of these different people to know the same Jesus and part of the same body and went, you know who'd be a good pastor here? Paul and went and got Paul and brought him on the team. Even Barnabas begins to follow suit in this. And so again, what you have is a divided church. Suddenly an imposition that says, there's a difference between you and me. You are unclean and I am clean. I am good and you are not. We need to be separate. Now on top of that, I want you to notice here that it says that he acted hypocritically again this is not peter living out his convictions this is peter putting on a play you may not know this but the word hypocritos, where we get hypocrite it's an acting word A a hypocrite is an actor on a stage okay he's going through the motions but those motions are not you know fiction It's not just must see tv right he's not putting on a play in that sense this play is actually changing the dynamic of the church itself and then finally i want you to notice one last thing verse 14 when i saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel this wasn't a small issue this was salvation on trial this was a gospel issue If you will, this was a doctrinal issue. And again, that's maybe a surprising statement. Did Peter make a doctrinal statement? Is he being a false teacher? No. But he's not walking in step with the gospel. And that's changing the nature of the gospel that people see and believe. This, by the way, is what hypocrisy always does. Hypocrisy is never spoken. Nobody says, I'm going to play the hypocrite. But what happens is, you don't know what to do about your own sin. Maybe you're covering it up. Maybe the way you cover it up is by condemning others. But either way, you put on a mask, just like an actor. And what happens? Somebody comes into your life, they encounter that mask, and they go, oh, this is not a place for a person like me. So what do they do? They dig through their back storage they find a mask and they put it on and it spreads and it grows and it perpetuates and then one last thing notice what he says to peter here i said to cephas before them all if you though a jew live like a gentile and not like a jew how can you force the gentiles to live like jew okay so he challenges them directly on this issue The question is here, what happened to Peter? Why the change in his behavior? Why did Peter, who had, remember, not just one, but three visions, and a serendipitous knock on the door from a centurion, and who saw with his own eyes the Spirit fall upon non-Jewish people, while he was still preaching, they weren't even yet baptized, and suddenly God just responds and makes them part of the body? Why did he do this? Look again at verse 12. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Out of fear. He changed his behavior to please this group, here known as the circumcision party. Now, some think that this group were just rigid Jewish Christians from the church in Jerusalem who were just like, you know, you you need to do these things. And by the time we get a little bit later, that party exists. That's the people that Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians. But the way that this is written here, and the way that it's referenced as they're just referred to as the Jews, as Paul deals with this, makes many commentators think that the... (coughs) The party that comes from James is trying to accommodate non-Christian Jews, keep the gospel acceptable in their eyes, maybe even for the sake of Christianity. It's an offense for us to eat with Gentiles, so it would be better if we just maintain this separation. But here's the punchline. This all stems from an external metric of worth. In the eyes of non Christian people who don't know Jesus, their value system is now being opposed upon the church and separating good from bad, Jew from Gentile. And this is always, as we saw last week, a threat to the gospel. What happens is we take external metrics of self worth, income, cultural superiority, status, political beliefs. There's so many places we do this. And then we bring them into the church and we impose that metric upon the church and we make judgment calls. And as we make judgment calls, we begin to divide. That's the difference here. And actually, the difference is the same. It is different between confronting someone with the demands of the gospel in love to maintain the community and calling someone out for putting demands on the community that are from the outside, that are external. And that comes down to the law, the Torah. That's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. We're going to talk a lot about those things. But notice what he says to Peter again there in verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? He says, Peter, you haven't been walking in your Jewishness in these ways for a long time. But the way that you're behaving is now allowing this group to put demands on the Gentiles in this church. You must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And he says, but that doesn't make any sense. Now, next week, we're going to look at the full argument that Paul makes that walks through the logic of and how this works. But again, the key is that he's not walking in step with the gospel. And as he does so, it starts to impact and infect the church. It's these things all together that leads Paul to respond. Why does he respond publicly? because it's a public issue why does he respond publicly because it's publicly infected the whole church why does he respond publicly because this is if you will for the community in antioch a life or death issue either either they're going to defragment and deteriorate and lose sight of what god has done in jesus christ or they're going to turn around it's dire and drastic and so he stands up and guess what Peter remembers. Paul doesn't tell us that ending of the story here because he really just wanted to get to this point. He wants to say they affirmed the gospel was the same and we came in unity and when Peter forgot it I reminded him to this is part of the story that he's laying out, okay? But here's what happens in the book of Acts. Probably months, maybe years after this we get to Acts chapter 15 and this issue becomes so big not just in Antioch but in all of the Christian churches they have a church-wide council. They call from representatives of all the churches and they have a big meeting and it's about this issue, this group that says Gentiles must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And so Paul shares and Barnabas walks through what they've seen God do throughout the world in these things. And then Peter stands up and he says the most amazing thing he says we need to remember that God saved them just as he saved us. Okay. And what's really interesting about the wording, I'm going to pull it up because I'm afraid to get it wrong. What's really interesting about the proclamation here that Peter makes, again, just months or years after this confrontation, he says this, This is from Acts chapter 15, and Peter is speaking, and he says this, verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting to test God by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We didn't keep the law. And then listen to this, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Do You see what he doesn't say? He doesn't say they'll also be saved. He says, we believe this is how we were saved. As we'll see next week, Paul recognizes that the gospel can't be a prerequisite, or excuse me, the law can't be a prerequisite for the Gentiles because it didn't pre-approve the Jews. The law did not bring about salvation. Jesus did. And so they cannot put this thing that never accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish, it is external. And so he stands up and he makes a stink and he calls out and he condemns for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the unity of the church, for the sake of the loving community that God is creating, that is defined by, that norms are normed by Jesus Christ and not the Old Testament law. Jesus Christ and not Circumcision. Jesus Christ and not ethnicity and these types of things. Here is Paul's final word, which we'll cover again next week in verse 20 of chapter 2. This is how he defines salvation and this tells us the whole story. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. That was the danger of what Peter was doing, nullifying the grace of God. Setting another standard as being determinant of clean and unclean, of in and out, of high and low, of good and bad. But for Paul, his whole life is defined by the fact that when Christ died for him, he died with Christ. Those norms, those standards, those opinions, they died along with it. And how does he live his life now? He lives his life in Christ. Again, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How do we walk in step with the gospel? When we allow Jesus to walk with us. When we walk with him. In fact, in some sense, where we allow him to walk in us. To live in us. In the life that I live, what does that look like in the flesh? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The easiest way to get to the bottom of what should I do to remember that when you make decisions in your life when you choose the standards of your life to do it in faith means to do it remembering the one who loved you and gave himself for you the gospel is comprehensive comprehensive And it leads to this loving community that works together to work out our salvation, to more greatly manifest the righteousness of God and enjoy fellowship with him. And so that means that that community is threatened by external standards. And it means that there's an accountability system in love, a community that comes alongside and moves towards the same place and wants everyone to arrive together But at the heart of that, it's not a man-made community just trying to be a community of love and peace or even of righteous good works. It's a community that aspires to be the body of Christ because that's what God has made it. It's a community that recognizes that God is building a temple and that temple is holy and it manifests not us and our good works to the world but the goodness of God. That's what a temple does. It's the place where people meet with God. And so, the gospel both demands that we not be divisive and calls us to confront and to challenge, to call out, to remind, to exhort, to confess, to repent, and the whole time trusting that When we do that, God is the one who's at work and leading us further and deeper into his plans for us, further and deeper into the loving community that he aspires, a people purified for his own pleasure and zealous for good works. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask for each one of us this morning who has known you and who has walked with you that you would remind us of of just that radical alteration that we went through. One that the Bible describes in extremely strong terms from darkness to light, from death to life. Help us to recognize this morning that that was the first fruits, just the beginning of what you desire to do in our life, of the work that you have for us. We're reminded this morning that everything in our life through Christ works together. All things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. But as the next verse says in Romans 8:29. That purpose is to be conformed into the image of your Son. To make us as you are. To work out your character, to restore us as your image bearers who reflect your love and truth and goodness and holiness and righteousness and justice to the world around us. Help us to yield anew to that to surrender afresh to ask you to conform us to that image and for anyone who's here who does not know jesus this is the salvation that's offered you not just an escape from the consequences of your sin but an escape from the sin itself a restoration in relationship to God, and your destiny to be a reflection of God's character. And we thank you, Father, for this community you've given us, which we call uh, us, which we call our church, which we call our family. I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate us in us both the love, the love that, cares for and supports and forgives and shows grace and gives patience and the love that aspires to encourage and exhort and challenge in gentleness and confront when things are serious and care enough